Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 2. The Gospel of John itself is sometimes divided up into three sections. Chapter 1 is the introduction. Chapters 2 to 12 are sometimes called the Book of Signs. And then chapters 13 to 21 are called the Book of Glory. Now, such divisions are observational, meaning it, it looks like that's how John has organized his Gospel, but obviously we can't say for sure. What we can say is that there are an awful lot of signs in chapters 2 to 12, and we meet the first of those in this chapter. You will notice that what Matthew or Mark or Luke calls a miracle, John generally calls a sign. John puts the emphasis on the meaning. We talked about that in the last episode. John is interested in less in the event and more in the explanation of the event. He's asking the question, what does it mean? mean. That is John's main concern. He doesn't want us to be impressed. He wants us to be informed. And I think it's fair to say that writing last, John has had the most time to observe the ups and downs of the early Christian movement. Remember, the Gospel of John is written long after the letters of the Apostle Paul, for example. So think of what Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians. He was trying to deprioritize their, their obsession with the spectacular. They wanted to speak in tongues and they wanted to see a healing. And Paul doesn't delegitimize those things, but he does try over the course of the letter to deprioritize those things. Paul wants the focus to be on things that are loving and things that edify. And he doesn't want people coming to church for the show. Obviously, then, that was a concern in the early church. And so it's not a huge leap to suggest that John changes the terminology in order to be as clear as possible about the significance. The miracles of Jesus are not a magic show. They are a form of communication. They are signs. That's a good word. The word sign tells us that these miracles are actually pointing at something beyond themselves. You're not supposed to look at the miracle. You're supposed to look where they're pointing. A wise reader, therefore, doesn't obsess over the sign, but rather looks in the direction that the sign is pointing. That's the sort of reader John is challenging us to be. We don't want to be like that dog whose master you know, points at the newspaper, and instead of picking up the newspaper, the stupid dog just walks over and sniffs the finger of the master. No, the finger's not the point. The newspaper's the point. Dogs don't always understand that, but John is hoping that we will understand that. And so he calls the miracles signs. They're pointing at something beyond themselves. And so we want to be asking over these next 11 chapters, what happened? Obviously, we want to know that. But then we want to ask, what does it mean? That's where John wants us to spend most of our time. The first three chapters within this second section, chapters 2, 3, and 4, all have to do with newness and replacement. C.H. Dodd says, for example, about these three chapters, the three chapters present the replacement of the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God, the old temple 
by the new in the risen Lord. An exposition of new birth for new creation. A contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ. And the worship of Jerusalem and Gerizim with worship in spirit and truth. Closed quote. So, we're talking about new things and better things. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, the third day there refers to the third day after the last event narrated in John's story, which was, of course, the conversation between Jesus and Nathanael. So on the third day after that, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Verse 2 says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. That's pretty good advice right there, right? Do whatever Jesus tells you. Now, the setting for this first miracle or first sign performed by Jesus is at a wedding. And that in itself, I think, is worth noticing. It tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that Jesus was pro-marriage. In Matthew 19, he grounds his understanding of marriage by reciting from Genesis 2. So even though Jesus himself did not marry, he was obviously a supporter of the institution. And he made no bones about the fact that his understanding of marriage was rooted in the Old Testament creation account. Now, secondly, it tells us that Jesus was not an ascetic. He went to parties. And to state the obvious, he was not an abstainer. Jesus was a fun guy. And apparently it got him into trouble. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, For John, speaking about John the Baptist, John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus is saying there that God was calling out to the Jewish community in a variety of forms. He sent an ascetic in John. And he sent a man of the people in Jesus, and yet the Jewish community by and large rejected them both. So it wasn't about the packaging. It was about the message. Some people won't hear it no matter how you dress it up. But for our purposes, it's enough to recognize that Jesus was not an ascetic. He did not treat the material world as if it were intrinsically evil. Food is not evil. Wine is not evil. Marriage is not evil evil. The problem isn't in those things. The problem is in us. Our hearts harbor evil, and therefore we can ruin and abuse beautiful things. Followers of Jesus do not need to be sour, dull, or boring. We should be lovers of people, lovers of marriage, lovers of love, and lovers of life because we follow Jesus. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. There's something to think about probably right there. Now, the text makes it clear that Jesus didn't go to this wedding in order to stage a miracle. The miracle was in response to a need. Specifically, it was in order to save a man from embarrassment. In Jewish culture, a wedding could last for up to seven days, and the costs were the responsibility of the groom. Now, I'll tell you this, as the father of four daughters, I think that's a marvelous tradition. And if we're going to be truly biblical, then maybe we should think about bringing that back. 
I'll let you decide. However, here we have a man who is about to be terribly embarrassed. The fact that Mary is somehow entrusted with solving this problem suggests to many that this man was a relative of Jesus in some way, perhaps a nephew of Mary, and therefore cousin to Jesus. Of course, we can't say for sure because John doesn't say. All we know is that Mary is concerned, and she knows enough about Jesus to know that if anyone can help this man, it is him. The very first miracle that Jesus ever did wasn't planned. It was simply a response to human need. But that isn't to say that it wasn't intentional. If Jesus is going to do something, then you can bet it's going to mean something. And that is what we see in the next several verses. Verse 6 says, Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, as we've already said, John wants us to focus here on the meaning. And we've already hinted at that meaning when we discussed the theme of these first three chapters in the book of signs. All of the events and signs in this section have to do with the newness and superiority of Jesus. And so it is here. Jesus is saying that what he offers is better than what Judaism offers. Judaism offers you water for washing. What I offer is infinitely better. D.A. Carson says here, the water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was to replace with something better. Jesus is better. Jesus is life and joy and hope and gladness. Jesus is the master of the Messianic feast. He makes bread in the desert. We'll get to that shortly. And he makes wine out of water. If he can do that, then truly he is the savior of the world. Verse 12 says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, perhaps you know that the synoptic gospels, remember that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels speak of a temple cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry. And so some scholars say that John has told this story out of order, out of sequence for some sort of thematic reason. But I don't think that's the most natural reading of the text. And there is certainly no reason why Jesus couldn't have done this twice 
And there are certain differences between the two accounts. For example, there's no mention of a whip in the version of the story that takes place in the last week of Jesus' life. So I think it is best to think of two occasions rather than one. The bottom line is that the temple in Jesus' day was a mess. It was supposed to provide help and nourishment and shelter to weary pilgrims on the road to heaven. And instead, it had become a den of robbers. It was corrupt and it was cold. The money changers had moved into the court of the Gentiles so as to squeeze out undesirables. Far from being a help to weary travelers, the temple was now a hindrance to true religion. So Jesus did a little house cleaning, and the Jewish leaders were understandably upset. Verse 18 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Did you hear that? Destroy this temple, this earthly temple made of stone, and I will raise it up in three days, speaking now about his body. The point is rather obvious. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new meeting place between God and man. The physical temple is obsolete. And of course, we know it was destroyed in AD 70. So now, if you want to pray, you go to Jesus. Now, if you need an audience with God the Father, you go to Jesus. Now, if you need atonement, covering, and mercy for sin, you go to Jesus. Jesus is the better temple. Thanks be to God. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, we're pretty much out of time here, but let me say two things. First of all, notice that Jesus was reserved about validating the faith of people who were responding to his signs. Miracles always draw a crowd, but they do not always build a church. So, Jesus waits to see if their faith is legitimate. There is a universe of wisdom in that example. Secondly, notice that John says that Jesus knew what was in a man, and that is pretty much a claim to divinity. The Old Testament is very clear that only God knows what is in a man. Jeremiah 17, 9, for example, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, here's the answer. It keeps coming in Jeremiah 17, 9. I, the Lord, I'm the one. I, the Lord, I know what's in a man. I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, test the mind. So Jeremiah says, only God knows the heart of a man. And here John says that Jesus knows the heart of a man. So if Jesus knows what only God can know, then Jesus must be God. Remember what C.K. Barrett said. I mentioned it during the last episode. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. 
That's what this book is all about. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.